Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. We'll read from verse 1 through verse 13. Genesis 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. <clears throat> the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it was, he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from, the, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Now, as soon as I started thinking about Genesis chapter 6, the two words came to my mind immediately. Those words were total depravity. What is total depravity? It's the doctrine that fallen man is completely affected by sin. He's completely infected with sin. He's completely a sinner in all areas of his being whether it's his body, his mind, yes, his mind is affected as well at the fall, his emotions, he's corrupted by sin. So in that sense, he's totally corrupted. Everybody in the world is under this condition. Everybody in the world is radically and drastically affected by sin. A couple weeks ago, we started in chapter 6, and the first thing we noticed was that we talked about was the prevalence of depravity. By the way, the notes are in the back. The prevalence of depravity. Now, it's clear as you read this chapter, one thing becomes very obvious, and that is this. Sin is prevalent at this time in history, this early time in history. It's widespread. It's universal. It's seen in various ways. If you look through the chapter, you'll, you'll see certain words and certain phrases that capture the idea of the prevalence of sin, this, to use to describe the spiritual condition of the people of that time. The activities of the people of that time describe their uh, the prevalence of, of depravity. The first thing we saw in regard to the prevalence of depravity was that there was a total disregard for God. Total disregard for God. That's how Jesus sums it up. Uh, once again, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 24. We read this last time. And um, Jesus is talking about the days of Noah. Matthew 24 Verses 36 to 39, Matthew 24, verse 36, he's talking about the second coming. And this is what he says in verse 36. Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. No one knows when the second coming is going to take place, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like what? The days of Noah. 
For as in those days before the flood, that's what we're talking about, Genesis 6, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is describing the spiritual conditions that will exist prior to the second coming, and they're the same conditions that existed prior to the flood. And what are those conditions? You would think you're going to hear something drastic at this point. People were eating, and we will see some drastic things in Genesis 6, but people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were giving in marriage. Now, that doesn't sound a lot serious. But the point Jesus is trying to make is people were doing these things with an attitude of total indifference to God. They didn't, God wasn't in their plans. They didn't care about God and, and what they were in, in their daily activities. There was a total disregard of God. They went about the business of their lives without including the Lord. Their lives were their own, like many people today. They did their own thing. They didn't care what God, God wasn't in, in any of their thoughts at all. They didn't give glory to God. They didn't, and whether, whatever they did, whether they were eating or drinking or, what, or whatever they did, they did not give any glory at all to God, as 1 Corinthians says we're, we are to do. There was this widespread disregard to, for God because they were preoccupied with their own lives. Total preoccupation with their own routine of life, doing their thing day after day without any regard to God. Now, that's what Jesus says about this time period. And I think that's my favorite interpretation of this chapter so far, what Jesus said. And beware that you don't get caught up in this trap of living your life, going about your business every day, whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, your job, and it's all about you, that you forget the author of life, that you forget the purpose of life, and that all of your activities are just based, uh, circled, and, and, and they're, they're revolving around yourself and not God. And so the first thing we wanted to bring up is what Jesus said. People at this time period lived in total disregard of God. Secondly, another way prevalence is described in Genesis 6, look at verse 5, is that there is great wickedness. Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now, you're going to see these different terms in this chapter, and they're going to be overlapping. And I believe that's the intention of chapter 6, one of the intentions, is to show in a repetitious manner how evil mankind was. And so he says, oh, there was great wickedness. And that's how, by the way, the story of humanity is going to progress from then on. You're going to see great wickedness. Now, verse 5 states the location of this evil. Where did this evil, this great evil take place? It says it was on the earth. Well, you say, that's obvious. Of course it was on the earth. But the point is this. It says, it says on the earth several times in this chapter. The point is this. It's a universal problem, evil is. It's a, not a localized problem. It doesn't take place in certain areas, but everywhere man lived on the earth, there was sin everywhere. Now, in every city, every major city in America that you go to, there are areas in those cities you would be advised not to go into late at night because there's danger there. Or maybe there's more uh, criminals there. Maybe it's drug infested. Or maybe it's prone to greater evil. And that is, although that's true, the reality is, is that evil abounds everywhere. Get this, where there are people, there is always evil. Where there is one human being in this planet, there is evil. Even if he lives by himself on a deserted island somewhere. That's how it is. Wickedness is not confined to certain locations. 
In Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, it says. What do we have here? We have a world saturated with evil. Saturated with evil of all kinds. Now, verse 5 does not define the evil. It just lets us know there's a whole lot of evil going on here in the early stages of, in this time period at least. And since the nature of mankind has not changed in all these years, then the evil that was great then is still great today. Now, in some cases, evil might be under a different name today, or maybe it's more of a high-tech variety of evil. But evil manifests itself, has always manifested itself, and always will, even today. When I thought of this, I thought of 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says this, I wrote to you in my letter, I told you people, you Corinthian believers in the church of Corinth, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Don't do that. Now, he says, I don't mean, I'm not talking about the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy of this world or the swindlers of this world. Since then, you would need to have to go out of the world. Now, Paul's instructing the, the Corinthian believers not to associate with those who are immoral within the church. But he makes this intriguing statement here in 1 Corinthians 5, and he says, in order to avoid evil altogether, you have to literally exit the world. Because it's everywhere you go. It doesn't matter what country you're in, what state in America you're in. It's everywhere. It's all, it's all over the place. You can't escape it. You can't escape the prevalence of sin. You can't escape it in this church even. Even though, thank God, he saved us by his grace. We're thankful for that, of course. But even if I could escape the presence of evil from other people, I still have to deal with my own sin. It doesn't matter where I'm at. I can be here in, in church, in this pulpit. I can be outside of this pulpit, outside of this church. I have to deal with my own sin wherever I'm at, wherever I go. That's how it is. And so that's, that's what he's talking He's talking about the prevalence, pre prevalence of evil. And by the way, I'm not through with verse 5 yet. We'll come back to it. But right now, I want you to continue this thought of the prevalence of depravity. Let's move on to the next point, corruption. It manifests itself in corruption. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. Earth was filled with violence. See, another word to describe what's going on. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way again upon the earth. Now, this word corrupt has to do with something that's been ruined. For example, it's used in Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah has this, Jeremiah is told to go buy a linen belt, to bring it up to our present-day terminology, go buy a linen belt. And then he says, He's, he's present, there's an object lesson he wants Jeremiah to present. He says, look, Jeremiah, get that linen belt and take it down to the Euphrates River and hide it in a crevice of the rock. In other words, it's going to get wet. It's going to get soaked. And Jeremiah does that. After several days, the Lord says, Jeremiah, retrieve that belt. And Jeremiah 13, 7 says, when he found it, when he found it, the belt was corrupted. Same word here, it was ruined by the water. He goes on to say it was totally worthless. That gives you some idea of the meaning of this word. Verse 11 says, the earth was ruined, literally, in the sight of God. Three times you saw the word used in verses 11 and 12. Now, the earth is not being corrupted or ruined in an environmental sense here. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about so-called climate control. We're not talking about environmentalism. No. Mankind is filling the earth with his sin. That's the problem. He is ruining everything. That's where the corruption comes into play. That's where the ruin comes into play. Mankind is ruining everything with his sin. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, all flesh 
had corrupted their way. How much, how, many, how much of the flesh on the earth had corrupted their way? All flesh. And I couldn't help but think of this. That includes children. We saw the children born in verse 4. Children were born in verse 4. It talks about kids. Did you hear that? The people in Noah's time were doing what was wrong in God's sight. Should we do what's wrong in God's sight? We shouldn't do that. I hope you're not doing what's wrong in God's sight. I hope that you are obeying your parents. I hope you want to follow Jesus and not sin. Jesus is always, by the way, kids, Jesus is always the right choice. Sin is always the wrong choice. Now, whatever God establishes as good and godly, mankind has this knack for ruining everything he does. We have this knack for ruining all that's good that God gave us. That's what we do. Sin ruins lives. It never improves anything. It always leads to ruin. Again, the truth of Romans, uh, of brother, uh, Psalm 14 and Romans 3 is true. It says that all have sinned. How many have sinned? All have sinned. I don't care who it is on the planet. There's none righteous. No, not one. Not even one person. And so he talks about the corruption involved here. The fourth way that, that sin, the depravity shows itself in this chapter is through violence. Look at verse 11. <coughs> now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Twice it says the earth was filled with violence. That doesn't mean there's an occasional violent act here and there periodically. It says the earth was filled with violence. It's always happening. Now the violence here, this word can be to a greater or lesser degree. It's any kind of... <clears throat> It's any kind of antisocial, uh, unneighborly activity, anything. It's any kind of violation of people's rights. It can be the exploitation of the weak and the poor by the wealthy and the powerful. It can be anything. Or it can even be, oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's brutal and cruel activities that causes physical harm. Dr. Zimmick, uh, George Zimmick, some of you here know George Zimmick. He says that a good paraphrase of this word would be anarchy. Anarchy. And these crimes... Dr. Zimmick says these crimes are directed ultimately against Yahweh. This is against God, just like David says, against thee, or against you, you only have I sinned, done evil in your sight. When I thought of this, I couldn't help but think of Portland. I think for over 100 days in a row, they rioted, they defied the police, they looted, they broke windows, they, thank you, Shane, they, you have to unscrew this for me here too, by the way. They attacked people, they burnt down police cars, uh, they violated people's rights. It was absolute, just total disgrace in America as far as I'm concerned. Guess what? Those people would have fit right in with Noah's day. They would have done it. Anarchy, as Dr. Zimmick says, I love that paraphrase. Chaos, mistreatment of people, a wide assortment of all kinds of crimes committed that day, I'm talking about Genesis 6, on a daily basis, or just plain unneighborliness. This is not a pretty society. This is absolutely a horrible time in history we're talking about here. Now, people today say, well, we live in such an evil day. I agree, we do live in, live in an evil day, but things were so bad then, God destroyed the planet, destroyed the earth, destroyed the people on the earth, rather. And Genesis 6 describes it as a society saturated by evil in many different ways. So here's the picture we have so far. 
People at this time in history were living in total disregard of God and his standards. They are involved in great wickedness. They managed to corrupt everything. They corrupted them, their own selves. They gave way to violence. They couldn't control themselves. Just like Cain in Genesis 4, they couldn't control themselves. They went their own way selfishly. The prevalence of depravity is on full display in Genesis 6. Read the chapter. It's an ugly society. Let me remind you that we still live in an ugly society, although I don't have to remind you of that. I shouldn't have to remind you of that. You have to ask the question, how? How did things get so out of control? Everything started out so good in Genesis chapter 1. started out so good. But as time went along, everything became so bad. What is the root cause of all this? And so we move from prevalence of depravity to, secondly, the root of depravity. The root of depravity in verse 5 Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a statement. All that depravity, this total disregard for God, the great wickedness, the universal corruption of mankind, the violence, these are only symptoms of something that is much deeper, a much deeper problem. There is a root cause, and the root cause is the human heart. That's where all this evil comes from. I'm not talking about the physical organ that pumps the blood. I'm talking figuratively. This may be the most telling description of total depravity in the whole Bible. If anybody thinks that the heart, the human heart, not transformed by the grace of God is okay or good, people say, I'm good. You talk to people, I'm not so bad. I'm a pretty good guy. I think maybe I can get to heaven. I hope I can get to heaven. I'm pretty decent. If anybody thinks that the human heart, apart from the grace of God, is good or okay, or capable of self-reform, then you are sadly mistaken. <laughs> you don't understand Genesis 6-5. Now, in Old Testament teaching, the heart, again, is like what Dr. Zimmett, what is Dr. Ken, what does Dr. Zimmett call the heart? That's right, the mission control center. He loves to use that phrase, the mission control center. You know, in Houston, they have the mission control center that, for NASA that manages space flights, usually from the beginning of the flight to the very end. They monitor these flights in this mission control center. When it comes to human beings, the heart is the mission control center of the life. It's what governs the person. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Why does it say this? Why does it say to watch over your heart with all diligence? For from it, from the heart, flow the springs of life. Everything flowing out of the heart. The Net Bible has it this way. For from the heart are the sources of life. In other words, the heart is a starting point. It's the fountainhead. Uh, springs have a starting point, and springs flow from that starting point in different directions. And in this case, out of the heart flow all the thoughts and the, the words and the choices that we make. Now today, we might think, people can think in, uh, in terms of the heart, when they think of the heart, they think in terms of emotions. It's an emotional thing, but that is not the primary emphasis of the Old Testament. Dr. Zemek again goes on to explain that the emotional function of the heart in the Old Testament is definitely in the background. Now, the Bible does mention emotions, feelings in connection with the heart. It certainly does. Yes, it does. But a far greater emphasis is placed on other things like the, our ability to reason and our will and the choices that we make. That arises out of the heart. It's the heart that makes plans, according to the Old Testament. It's the heart that exercises its will, that makes decisions. 
Also included in, the, in this is the, the conscience as a function of the heart. And I think I've got some verses you can look up on your notes here. So the heart is that which wills or just, and decides and thinks and knows and judges between right and wrong. Where do evil actions spring from? Where do words, evil words spring from? Where do evil attitudes spring from? What's their source? What's the starting point? It's the heart. Genesis 6-5 nails it on the head. Why was there so much pervasive evil in Genesis 6? It's because of the hearts of the people were evil. That's why. That's not difficult to understand. Now, this year, there has been nonstop talk about a pandemic. You hear it every day. You hear it constantly. And as I thought about it, I thought, wait a minute. There is a spiritual pandemic that has affected everybody, that's infected everybody. You're not going to escape this, by the way. Every child of Adam is affected. No one escapes it. And there is no one, there's no such thing as a person who's asymptomatic. Every person on the planet is infected by this evil, and it shows in their life. It clearly shows, and you can see it in their life. See it in my life. And no amount of social distancing is going to prevent this particular pandemic. Genesis 6-5 gets, truly gets to the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is the heart itself. It's about the heart. Now, this is a good place to begin counseling people. You say, how do I counsel people? Something I'm still working through. Boy, you get all kinds of challenges coming your way. What about this impossible situation, Mark? I, 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 say, I always say it's, it's like they present these problems to you like it, it's, it makes a rabbi go cross-eyed, you know, trying to figure these things out. But here's a good place to be in, in counseling people, Genesis 6-5. Some com somebody comes to you with a problem, a pornographic problem, an attitude problem, uh, anger problem, a pride problem, a uh, impatience problem, and you. And what is the root of the problem? It's evil residing in the heart. That is the diagnosis the Scripture gives. That's where you start with people. What about your heart? In Genesis six five, the Lord saw that the heart, the wickedness of man, was great. And look at the phrase: every intent of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw that. Now, it doesn't mean it took him a long time to figure this out. Oh, it dawned on him one day that this is how it was. He always knew this. He knew it since Adam's sin. He knew it before Adam's sin. He knows all things. He's very aware of the evil of my heart. <clears throat> He's very aware of the evil of your own heart. He knows all this. Now, this verse really pinpoints the true nature of, of the heart apart from God's grace, doesn't it? It informs us that every intent of the thoughts of the heart is only evil continually. Intentions of the heart. We could say inclinations of the heart. What the heart is inclined to. What's it inclined to? It's inclined to evil. Jonathan Edwards says that the heart is always going to go the way it's inclined to. And the heart of the unsaved is going to go the direction of evil. It's always going to be this way. He's never going to choose God. That's why, that's why the unsaved person can't choose God. He doesn't, have that, he doesn't have a transformed heart or redeemed heart. We could say the imaginations of the heart in, in this verse here. The word... Uh, intentions or inclination is related to another word in Genesis 2-7, the word formed. It says in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. He formed man. That word form is related to this word intent. In Genesis uh, 2-7, God formed man like a potter forms clay. He fashioned man. In Genesis 6-5, man forms his own thoughts. He fashions his own thoughts in the way he wants to do that. Unfortunately, those thoughts, those intentions, those inclinations are at odds with God. 
They're not in line with what he says, naturally speaking, the natural man without, without the spirit. In Deuteronomy 31, 21, the Lord is speaking prophetically about the future of Israel. He talks about their un- one day in the future, you're going to be unfaithful to me. You're, not going, to, you're, going, to, you're going to turn to idols uh, when you're in the promised land, and they end up doing that. And then he explains why, Deuteronomy 31, 21. He says, for I know what they are inclined to do. I know what their intentions are. I know what they want to do. I know what they're inclined to do. Even today, before I've brought them to the land, I know what they're inclined to do. The Lord, all, he knows all too well the inclinations of our heart. He knows. He knows whether your heart is inclined to him or against him, whether you know him or you don't. In John 2, 23 to 25, many people were believing in Jesus, it says. It says that in other places in John 2. They're believing in Jesus, John chapter 8. And then it says they want to kill him right after that. Genesis in John 2, they are believing in Jesus because they see his miracles. But Jesus knows how fickle people are. And, and it says there, I love this, this passage, by the way. John 2, this is a passage you ought to get locked in your brain when you're talking to people. 2.23, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now, it says these guys believed in Jesus. But he didn't trust them because he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. He knew the evil of his heart. He wasn't fooled by anybody. He's, Jesus is not fooled by anybody who allegedly believes in him. Now, they might fool us. They might tell us, oh, yeah, I believe in Christ. Oh, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. But they can't fool Christ. The question is, does he know them as his sheep? Now, when you might ask, well, what about the good people in the world? We're talking about evil hearts. What about the good people in the world like philanthropists or anybody? People who are, you know, a lot of times wealthy people will contribute to some cause. They'll build a hospital uh, here or maybe in another country. Or they'll give to charities, that kind of thing. And I'm thankful they do, by the way. I'm thankful for that. The Shriners do a great work in their hospitals of treating people for free. And they've, char- they've treated many without charging for them. I'm thankful for that. But look at the theological background of the Shriners, and you got a problem on your hand. And though people can render a great service to others, they're still evil in their heart. You need to understand that. Now, if, if, they, if these people if, that do not belong to the Lord do that which benefits society, I can tell you they're doing it with a tainted motive. There's a tainted motive behind it somehow because they have an evil heart. How can it be done in a righteous, thoroughly righteous manner? Maybe people contribute to get the applause of other people for pride. They want people to say, hey, look what, look what that guy did. He did a great thing. Maybe, maybe it gains them favor with politicians. Maybe it's a tax write-off, whatever it is. But the heart that is apart from Christ, which does things to benefit society, I can tell you this much, does not do that to glorify God. They're not thinking, gee, I want to glorify God with this. They're not thinking that at all. There's another motive. The passage says that these people were filled with only evil continually. Literally, that's only evil all the day. Only evil all the day. So evil always in this time period. Evil every day. Evil ruled the day. But the statement seems so harsh, doesn't it? Could this be the case? Could people have been so bad that this was true? Well, ask yourself this question. Whose perspective is this coming from? Who is it that's making this assessment of the world this is not the assessment of Moses, the human author. 
This is not the assessment of any, of any person. It's the assessment of the Lord himself. Look at verse 5 again. The Lord, notice carefully the, the first few words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And he saw that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this statement concerning the evil of mankind is completely accurate, completely true because it comes from the truth himself, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if we assess mankind, we might soften the words. Well, you know, he's a pretty good guy. He's not all that bad. Yeah, he's done some things that are wrong, but he's not bad, generally speaking. And we would not see it in the same light as the Lord does. But in the brilliant and bright glow of the holiness of God, he sees it, for he calls it like it is. Man's evil. He weighs our hearts as they actually are in reality. He sees what we are really are, and he says, you've come far short of the glory of God. Nowhere near it. Now, if you think about it, think about this. How can a heart that's hostile to God, a heart that is darkened in its understanding, a heart that is calloused, um, how can a heart that has no ability to please God, Romans 8, how can a heart, that kind of heart be anything but evil continually? Again, this is from God's perspective. People who have evil hearts can still work their jobs. They can still provide for their families. They can still go to work. They can still obey the law. Their hearts are still evil. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I would say the only person that can, the only one that can understand fully and truly the depth of human, the depravity of the heart is the Lord himself. None of us even understand it fully. Now, we already read the passage in John 2 where the Lord has, shows his knowledge of the heart of mankind, but he also spoke about the subject. Turn to Mark chapter 20. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7. You can try to turn to Mark chapter 20. Maybe your Bible has it, but I really hope it doesn't because it doesn't exist. Mark 7 Verses 20 to 23, Mark 7, let's look at Jesus again. You know, he already knows what's in the heart of man. Now he says this, Mark 7, 20, Jesus was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Oh, it's for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Comes from within, that's where evil is sourced, from within. And it, and it, it proceeds from within and displays itself in outward actions. For example, a person who commits <clears throat> deliberate murder, he doesn't do that. It's not an accident. He's premeditated this. He's planned it out, and then he carries it out. All outward actions begin in the heart. That's where it all starts. You have to get to the heart. Luke 6.45, Jesus said this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is bad. And he goes on to say, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. James describes the tongue in James 3 as a restless evil full of deadly poison. But what is the root of this restless evil, this overflow of deadly poison? Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
You can gauge people. Maybe I shouldn't say this. I'm going to get. I'm going to be gauged. You can gauge people by what they say. If, if your heart is full of good treasure, such as the Word of God, then you're going to give good counsel to people, helpful counsel to people, God-honoring counsel to people. And if you are, if your heart is full of evil treasure, the counsel that's coming out of your mouth is going to be ungodly counsel, and you're going to lead people the wrong direction. You're going to give bad advice, and you're going to be unhelpful, and you're not going to glorify God. The question is, what kind of treasure lies buried in your heart? That's going to make all the difference in the world. Is there any hope for such an evil heart? Yes, the Lord can cleanse the heart of evil. Ezekiel 36, 26, he can take away the heart of stone and replace it with a heart that is willing and, and wants to obey the word of God. And it's not only for unsaved people. Even after you're a believer, you need to have this daily heart and maintenance. You do. The, the person who wrote Psalm 119, a man of God, who loved the word of God, he talks about it again and again, he prayed this, incline my heart to your testimonies. Now, why would he have to pray that? You ever read Psalm 119? This guy is in love with the Word of God. He's in love with God. And he prays, incline my heart to your testimonies. I'm afraid I might be moved away from your testimonies by my wicked heart. As godly as he was, he prayed this prayer. That should be our daily prayer. So we've talked about the prevalence of evil, the root of evil. Thirdly, the consequences, I'm sorry, the consequences of depravity. And again, these consequences are from the Lord's perspective. But we don't get away with evil. That's not how it works. People think they get away with evil. They don't from God's perspective. We've already seen the Lord does, does not turn a blind eye to the evil hearts of people. He doesn't do that. Those who carry on their business as if the Lord doesn't exist, they're going to get a wake-up call one day. That's going to happen. Great wickedness, that's going to not go unpunished. Violence, it's not going to be forgotten by God. And the human race we're going to see in the coming chapters is going to pay a steep price for their evil. There are consequences to evil. Now, how does the Lord respond to all this evil? First of all, with a divine deadline. A divine deadline. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Now, I think personally verse 3 is not only a result of verse 2. I think it applies to the whole chapter. Uh, I think... In light of, of this whole chapter, again and again, God is saying, this is an evil world. Again and again, he says this is evil. This is a, a, a depraved society. And in light of this, he says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Now, this is the only time this word strive is, that's translated strive is mentioned in the whole Old Testament. It's not mentioned anywhere else, just this one time. So it's a, it's, it's a difficult word to define. However, without going into a lot of blah, 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 <laughs> I take it to mean strive or contend in this context. God's Spirit will not strive with man forever. This is a chapter on sin and judgment. Judgment is coming. Think of the context here. The Lord's going to put a time limitation on mankind. Remember the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2 hovered over the surface of the waters? Well, guess what? He does something else. He, he strives. He's been striving with mankind. And the same spirit who hovered over the waters is not, is, is not going to continue to strive because God has had enough of evil. Had enough. And he's going to give mankind 120 years before he sends the flood. So the clock is ticking. You got, you got 120 years to get it right, to, get, to repent. Now, 
let me say this, some see this limitation of 120 years as saying that the Lord will reduce man's lifespan from what it was before the flood to a shorter lifespan of 120 years after the flood. You say, wow, I wish I lived a short lifespan of 120 years. But if you remember in Genesis 5, Adam lived how long? 930 years. Uh, Seth lived 912 years. Methuselah, 969 years. Now, according to this view, that view, that will change after the flood. At most, people will live to be 120, is, is how the view goes, something like that. However, the problem with this view is this. If you look after the flood, Abraham lived to be 175 years of age. Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob lived to be 147. So it's not exactly working. However, it works its way down to, to Moses, who lives 120 years. I'm not going to argue with people if they take that view. The other view, which I, the one I've always held to, is that God is setting a deadline of 120 years before the flood hits. He's warning mankind you have 120 years to repent of this evil, to get right with God, to confess your sin, to trust the Lord, to give him his proper place. So on the one hand, God is setting a period of judgment, a day of judgment. On the other, he's giving a grace period of 120 years. God's gracious. 1 Peter 3.20 speaks of the patience of God waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. God's patient. Not forever, though. Sort of like Jonah. I thought of Jonah. When I was thinking through this, I thought of Jonah who went to, in the book of Jonah, went to, to Assyria, that evil, wicked nation of Assyria, goes to the capital of Nineveh, and God says, I want you to preach for them to repent. And he goes in there and he says this, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'm giving you 40 days to repent. Boy, they all repent. Even the animals repent, it says in Jonah chapter 3. And just as the Lord gave Nineveh 40 days, I think the same thing's happening here. Genesis 6, he appears to give mankind 120 years to repent. Why 120 years? I have no idea. That's what it says. Now, I will say this. Either view stresses a limitation upon mankind. And God is long-suffering, but his patience does have an end. Verse 3 goes on to say, I told you about the difficulty of Genesis 6, 1 to 4, especially 2 to 4. Verse 3 goes on to say, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. <laughs> the spirit would no longer continue to strive with mankind. Why? Because he also is flesh. What in the world does that mean? Good question. I'm going to go ahead and side with Luther and Calvin and Matthew Henry on this difficult phrase. Uh, Matthew Henry says this. This is typical of what other, these other guys were saying and, and other people. He says that the Spirit's striving, I've got this quote on your paper, was in vain with the most of mankind. Contending his striving in vain. Therefore, says God, he shall not always strive. The blessed Spirit strives with sinners. Yes, he does. By the convi he convicts them and admonishes them and in their conscience to turn from sin to God. If the, but if the Spirit be resisted, Matthew Henry says, if he be quenched and opposed, though the Spirit strive long, for a long time, he will not strive always, he will not strive forever. The reason for this, because he is also his flesh. That is, he is incurably corrupt and carnal and sensual. It is the corrupt nature and the inclination of the soul towards the flesh that oppose the spirit's strivings and render them ineffective. When a sinner has long sided with the flesh against the spirit, the spirit justly withdraws his work and he strives with that person no more. 
No one loses the Spirit's strivings except those who have first forfeited them. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is working in the world, like John 16, 8 says, he is convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment to come, uh, and people aren't listening, then there comes a time when the Spirit may not work with those people anymore. This happens even in our present day, I believe. And back then, the Holy Spirit was pressing those truths home, probably through the, the preaching of Noah and, and other ways, through their conscience. And when that was happening, people were resisting, and they were rejecting, and they were living their own lives in total disregard of God, and the Spirit eventually stopped striving with them. They forfeited their opportunity to respond to the Lord. Calvin says this, the world was becoming perpetually worse in Genesis 6. And now, as if wearied out, God declares he has no mind to contend or to strive with man any longer. The Lord here seems to place his spirit in opposition to the carnal nature of men. The New Testament version of that might be Acts 7. Stephen's out there preaching, and the people are listening or resisting his message. They don't like what they're hearing. In fact, they get so angry, they stop their ears, and they do what? They stone him to death. But prior to that, Jesus, Stephen tells them in Acts 6, uh, 7, 51, you men are stiff-necked, and you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 17, the flesh sets this desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Why? For these are in opposition to one another. And the people in those days are content, content to resist the Spirit and let their flesh rule. And the spirit was quenched while sin ruled the day in Noah's time. That's a sad thing when people resist the spirit. Very sad. You talk to people about the gospel, and they don't listen. They don't pay attention. You're praying for them constantly, and they're turning to deaf ear of the Lord, and that's sad. And we're concerned for those people. But such was the case in Noah's day, and the Lord sets a deadline. And I might add, it seems to me a gracious deadline. I'm going to give you time. But uh, you, there's judgments coming. Well, now, the question is, will these people respond to the Lord as they should? Well, we'll see next week. We come back here again to meet. But as, I, as we close, I want to ask, oh, again, like we did last week, if I can ask Mark, do you mind praying for those that, we've, that people have witnessed to? Pray for Mike's father. Pray for other, you guys have been out there knocking doors. Pray for the people we've witnessed to over the years that have not responded to the gospel, that have resisted the Holy Spirit, and we know the Spirit can, can effectively work in the lives of people. We know that. I'm not trying to get into all kinds of theology here, but people resist the Holy Spirit. Mark, can you close in prayer and pray for the people who need to be saved?